you to turn to Mark chapter 8. Now, as you're turning over there, let me do one quick announcement that I missed during the welcome. Uh, We invite you to stick around and join us for our Bible communities this morning following our worship service. We've had a class, a Bible community that's met in the auditorium the last few weeks for this mental health series with Eddie Gooch, and that ended last week, so the normal class will be back together in the gym or the fellowship hall, and then all the other adult classes and kids' classes will be the same. And we invite you to stick around and join us, get to know somebody, uh, join one of our classes this morning. Now, as you turn over to Mark chapter 8, I want to tell you what we're doing over the next few months. Uh, Back in September, October, November, and the fall, we did a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, and we started and we got through pretty much the first half of Mark. We took a break for a few months. Starting today and going through Easter Sunday, we're going back to Mark. And what we're going to look at is the second half of the Gospel of Mark, and I mentioned a few months ago, it kind of, it changes its tone a little bit. And in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10, Jesus gives us three passion predictions. And these three passion predictions set the tone for the rest of the Gospel of Mark. So this morning, as part of the intro for the sermon, I'm going to invite uh, my friend and neighbor Jack Hell up here, and he's going to read our scripture this morning. He's going to read these three passion predictions from Mark 8, 9, and 10. And I encourage you to think about the weight of these passion predictions, and I encourage you also to place yourself in the shoes of the disciples who are hearing this prediction on the other side of the cross, not fully comprehending or understanding why this has to take place. So reflect on that, and I'm going to pass it on to Jack for a moment. As in the time of Ezra, I want to invite you to stand with me as God's word is read. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men." And now in Mark chapter 9, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. And moving on to Mark chapter 10. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be portrayed to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, later he will rise. And then finally, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Jack. So the question that the disciples are asking when Jesus gives these predictions of 
What's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem? They're asking why. They're confused. They're afraid to ask because at first in Mark 8, Peter speaks up and then he's rebuked. And Jesus even says, get behind me, Satan. So he keeps telling them, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, be rejected, die. And then on the third day, rise again. And, and they don't understand what he means, but what they're also thinking is why. Why does this have to happen? Why is this the plan? Why did we quit our jobs to follow you? And this is what you're... It's happening. This is what's going to happen when you get to Jerusalem. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And in that book, he poses the question, why did Jesus die? If Jesus was prepared, if God was prepared to forgive us, and he knew that he was going to forgive us, if he knew he was going to let us off the hook, then why did an innocent man have to die? Why go through all of that? Uh, Timothy Keller is another Christian author and preacher and uh, works in New York City, so he works with all sorts of skeptics and people that are outside of the faith and have a lot of questions about why we believe what we believe. And Timothy Keller said he gets the question, why did Jesus have to die? More than he gets the question, does God exist? So people are puzzled by this if they really stop and contemplate. And sometimes people think about why did Jesus have to die even outside of a normal Christian framework. A guy named Tony Jones wrote a book, and the book is called, Did God Kill Jesus? And the subtitle is, Searching for Love in History's Most Famous Execution. Sounds like an interesting topic. Well, he writes this book, and then he's invited to speak at different places about the book, and he was invited to speak at a Christian school. So he was there with parents and teenagers, and put the parents on the spot without warning, and he said to them, Turn to your teenager, turn to your kid, and explain to them why Jesus had to die. Take two minutes and do it. And then he said, and kids, you grade your parents on their explanation. Well, when when it was over, when the two minutes were up, uh, none of the parents received an A. Most of the parents received a bad grade from their kids. And he said the conclusion was the parents believed that Jesus died for their sins. They just didn't fully understand why, or at least fully understand how to explain why Jesus died. So Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, he's telling his disciples, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be rejected, killed, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise on the third day. And they're asking why. They're wondering why this is going to happen. So we have this great word in our churches and church theology, it's this word atonement. A basic definition of atonement is we are at one with God through the sacrificial death of Jesus. As human beings, we know We're imperfect. As human beings, it doesn't take a genius to figure out we have a sin problem. Whether you believe in God or you don't, we know we're broken people. So there's a problem there. We're separated from God because of our sin. And somehow, through the death, through the cross, through this plan, we are made one with God. That's what atonement is. The English word comes from this Middle English word, which means oneness or harmony. You've probably heard somebody say before, atonement is also at one meant, you know, being one with God. Another word for atonement, it's often translated in our New Testament as reconciliation or reconcile. You see 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about the ministry of reconciliation. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he's reconciling us to God, he's reconciling all things to God. So for 2,000 years now, we've had a lot of church history, we've had a lot of theologians, we've had a lot of examples and a lot of explanations as to 
why Jesus had to die, why this was the plan, what this plan accomplishes. So we have all these different atonement theories, and I want to share a few of those with you. Some of these atonement theories are helpful. Some of them are not so helpful. But we kind of need all of these theories to help explain the mystery of the cross and what all was accomplished. One of the atonement theories is the satisfaction theory of atonement, of being made one with God, which is basically a level of suffering necessary to equal the sin that we commit. I've already mentioned, we could all agree, we're all sinners. Every one of us is a sinner, and so there's some level of suffering that needs to take place to atone for our sins. So the satisfaction theory says that the cross is Jesus taking on that suffering. Well, another word for it is propitiation, which is kind of in the the same boat here. It's Jesus' death appeases God's wrath against sinful humanity. This is a popular way of viewing the cross, of viewing atonement, but there are some problems with it. Some people look at this theory of satisfaction and propitiation, and they say, why is God so angry? Why does God have this wrath? Yeah, maybe God is a just God, but is he just angry and wanting to get his wrath out on someone? And then sometimes people will point out like Luke chapter 15, where Jesus tells these three parables, parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and then most famously the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. And in this parable, there's a dad waiting for his lost son, and he runs to him, and he hugs him, and he embraces him, and then throws a party for him, has a feast for his lost son who comes home. So when we look at those parables, it seems like God is love, and he's not angry wanting to get his wrath out on someone, but we know there is God's wrath. So this theory of satisfaction sort of explains what's going on, but it's still incomplete. Well, then there's theories like the sacrifice theory. Sacrifice theory of atonement. You just take the Old Testament, take the law of Moses, and we see that what was required for remission of sins is a blood sacrifice. You could read through the Old Testament and you see that. You see, in the times of Jesus, people would travel all the way to Jerusalem, to the temple, and they would go, and they would buy an animal, and they would take it to the priest, and the priest would butcher the animal, and that blood that was shed would somehow atone for their sins for at least that year. So the sacrifice theory is, and we see this even throughout the New Testament, is that Jesus becomes the final sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb. So one way of explaining how the cross works, why Jesus had to die, was, well, if you believe in God and you believe in in how God worked through the Old Testament, sacrifice was required, so Jesus becomes that final sacrifice. But even the sacrifice theory of atonement is incomplete in a way. There's other ways of looking at the cross and explaining it. The most popular atonement theory in the West is the substitution theory. This is kind of like a law court. Like you picture going to court and there is a judge and there is somebody who is guilty and is going to be sentenced and penalized and then here comes Jesus. He substitutes himself in our place, right? So we're not judged the way that we should be, the way that we deserve because he substitutes himself. Himself. And in the, the Holman Bible Dictionary mentions, we understand the substitution theory at its best when we understand Jesus' oneness with God, and I'll mention more on that in just a moment. 
But think about substitution. You know, Jesus substitutes his place. He becomes a sacrifice. So these theories combined together start to kind of explain why Jesus had to die. Something the disciples in Mark 8, 9, and 10 were not really comprehending. So for an example, this is a deputy, John Cotfilia Jr. And a few years ago, he received a call saying that somebody was on the interstate uh, driving on, in the wrong lane, going the wrong direction. So he responded to the scene, and he showed up on the interstate trying to find this person going the wrong way. And in front of him was a young girl named Sarah Green. She was driving her car, and she looked up in the distance, and she saw a car coming at her. She saw the headlights coming at her, and she thought, this can't be happening, right? Like, a car's coming at me head on. She couldn't get off to the right. She couldn't get off to the left. She had nowhere to go. This car's going over 70 miles per hour, and it looks like an inevitable head-on collision. And then from behind, all of a sudden, this car speeds up and pulls up beside her, and it's this police officer, and then makes a split-second decision, and he jolts in front of her and takes the head-on collision himself. And he died that day. And she walked away without a scratch. And when you read that story, it's obvious what's happening. One guy gave up his life so that someone else could live. Somebody was going to hit that car head-on, so he made a decision. He would substitute himself so this other girl, this stranger, could live. When we hear stories like that, you could probably think of all sorts of sacrifice stories, of people giving up their life, of people dying so that someone else could live, and sometimes our emotions are stirred with stories like that, or sometimes our thoughts are provoked. And what we start to think about is, oh, the cross, like, When Jesus dies on a cross, he sacrifices himself, he substitutes himself in our place. And and it starts to kind of explain, we're getting an idea, there's a sin problem, Jesus comes in for us as a sacrifice, as a substitution. Another theory is the crucified God theory of atonement, which basically the definition is the crucifixion is what God endures in Christ as he forgives us. In the 1970s, a guy named Jürgen Moltmann, which is a German name, so I'm probably messing that up, but he wrote a book called Crucified God. And in this book, he talks about Jesus' equality with God. The Trinity, all Father, Son, and Spirit are equal. And so he uses the Gospel of John as an example. And he says, on the cross, this isn't God inflicting pain on Jesus, This is God, through Jesus, absorbing the pain. And so, if you were to look at the Gospel of John, for example, you you know how John starts in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And then throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus makes these bold claims. He has seven I am statements. He talks about how he is equal with the Father. Philip says, we want to see God. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So through Jesus, it's not so much that there's the separation between God and Jesus, but if Jesus is equal with God, then what Jurgen Moltmann is saying is one theory of atonement is that's God crucified. But then even that gets complicated because you could easily say, but God can't be with sin. And if he's carrying the sin of the world, and then these atonement theories start to get mind-boggling. So if your mind boggled, we'll just move on to the next one, which is the example theory, which I think is less of a theory of atonement and more of just kind of an added bonus of what takes place at the cross. So with this theory, you could really use the gospel of Matthew as an example. 
You've heard of the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and specifically Matthew 5. Jesus has all these radical teachings like forgive people, don't seek revenge, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He's teaching things that go completely against our human nature. And he's saying, this is the way of the kingdom of God. And then on the cross, Jesus displays his teachings. Jesus backs up what he taught. Jesus gives us a big picture of what the kingdom of God lived out looks like. On the cross, he forgives. While Jesus is on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he loves his enemies, he prays for them, he turns the other cheek. On the cross, Jesus reverses the patterns of this world and gives us a different way to live and to respond. So on the cross, Jesus sets an example for us. And then we get to this ransom theory of atonement, which is from what Jack read just a few minutes ago, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus tells his disciples, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here comes the ransom theory, which is a definition is people are in bondage and cannot free themselves. Someone comes and pays the price to redeem those in captivity. So Jesus pays his life as a ransom. Or this word redeem is in that definition. And a couple months ago, I did a sermon on Ruth. If you remember the story of Ruth from the Old Testament, um, a guy comes in and says, I, I will be the kinsman redeemer and redeems Ruth and Naomi. And, and this is what Jesus does for us. He's redeeming all of humanity. He's offering his life as a ransom. And another way of looking at that is rescue. It's like Jesus came to earth on a rescue mission to rescue many, to rescue the entire world. And again, this makes me think of a rescue story. In 1982... Air Florida Flight 90 took off from the Washington National Airport, and they really failed to gain any altitude, and so they ran into the 14th Street Bridge. The plane, this big commercial airline, hit a few cars, hit a truck along the way, and crashed into an icy river. Most people on the flight didn't make it, but six people survived. And they're floating around in this icy river, floating around on the debris, And they're waiting for somebody to come rescue them, but their time is limited because if somebody doesn't get them out of that water soon, they're going to die of hypothermia. And so the clock was ticking, it was dangerous, and the only way to get to them was for a helicopter to show up, drop a rope with like a little floating device at the end of the rope, and take people out one at a time. So the helicopter shows up, drops the rope, and this guy swims over to the floating device and then grabs another passenger and pulls him over and puts him on the floating device. The helicopter takes that passenger up and over to safety. Helicopter comes back, drops down again. This same guy grabs the next person. And then all five people who couldn't help themselves, some couldn't swim, some of them were really in deep trouble at that point, he helped all five people go in front of himself. He didn't grab it himself. He didn't hop on and say, take me. He made sure that everybody else went, and then when the helicopter came back to get him, he had died. So he sacrificed his life so that these other five people could live. And so they did some research, looked at pictures from the scene to figure out who is this guy. And they figured out his name is Arnold Dean Williams Jr. They named the bridge after him, called him a hero. And one of the ministers at the funeral made a comment that 
very rarely is someone capable of dying, especially for strangers. He didn't know any of the people that he saved, and they didn't know him. But he made a decision that he was going to put their life above his own. And in Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. To offer his life for many. To rescue many. And so then there's this last theory of atonement that I'll mention to you. And it's this theory called Christus Victor. It's this old Latin phrase which means Christ is the conquering, is the conqueror of the powers of evil that held humanity in subjection. This Christus Victor theory and the ransom theory go hand in hand. You see, back in September and October and November, as we were going through the first part of the Gospel of Mark, I mentioned a few different times that Mark paints this picture of Jesus as a divine warrior leading a new exodus. You see, people are in bondage to sin People are in bondage to death and decay. And here comes Jesus, this warrior, and the true enemy in the Gospel of Mark is not the Pharisees, not the chief priests, not the teachers of the law. The true enemy is Satan and the powers of darkness. So from the very beginning in the Gospel of Mark, what Jesus is doing is he is conquering Satan. In Mark chapter 3, he binds up the strong man, so Jesus is the stronger man. He enters his house to do that. He's casting out demons. In Mark chapter 5, he goes across the sea, and he finds legion, and he casts out this demon. And one at a time, Jesus is picking Satan apart, and he's redeeming people. He's rescuing people. He's even forgiving sins. But on the cross... When Jesus sacrifices his life, when Jesus tells his disciples in Mark 8, 9, and 10, when we get to Jerusalem, we're not going there to raise up an army to overthrow the Romans and to prove ourselves. We're going there for me to die, is what he's telling them. And for Peter, you know, we read this in Mark chapter 8, for Peter, that seems like defeat. And he rebukes Jesus. We're not going to let you die. We're not going to let that happen. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because the plan of Satan would be for Jesus to go and to conquer and to kill. But Satan's defeat is at the cross. This is Christus victor. Christ victorious over Satan, over the powers of darkness. As he leads this new exodus. And somehow, some mysterious way, the cross is what defeats Satan. And then throughout the New Testament, we pick up on this same theme. Like in Luke chapter 10, Jesus' disciples returned to him, and they had been on this mission trip, and, and they report to him what happened, and they have been casting out demons. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, John says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. In Hebrews chapter 2, the Hebrew writer said, that Jesus shared in our humanity, Hebrews 2, 14, around there. And by doing so, by being obedient to the cross, that he defeats Satan. Because Satan held the power of death and held people in slavery to their fear of death. And through the cross, Jesus defeats that. So somehow, some way, through this death that Jesus is predicting in Mark 8, 9, and 10 is going to lead to our redemption, to our rescue, to our ransom, to the defeat of Satan. 
He substitutes himself. He sacrifices himself. And so we have all these different atonement theories where people are attempting to explain how it all works, why Jesus had to die, what this looks like. And in some levels, it's still mysterious to us. You know, I mentioned C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. And he asked that question, if God was planning on forgiving us, why didn't he just forgive us? Why did an innocent person have to die? And he talks about some of these different atonement theories, and he said if the theory doesn't help you, then just drop it. They're just theories. The theory itself isn't Christianity. And in this book, he he mentions how we can eat a meal and eat food and know that food nourishes our body, but not be able to fully explain every element of how it nourishes our body. And what C.S. Lewis says about the cross is in some mysterious way it's like that. We may not be able to fully comprehend or fully explain to someone's satisfaction why Jesus had to die, what all works through it, but he said we know that it's what we need. And until you accept Jesus, then you won't really fully understand it anyways. Colossians chapter 2 is a passage I want to read as we get ready to close out this morning. Colossians chapter 2, these words from Paul. You know, I had a, a different ending for the sermon uh, up until about 10 o'clock last night, and I just kept going back to Colossians 2, so I was like, let's end with this. So in Colossians chapter 2, I'm not going to get into a background of Colossians and what, why Paul writes there and all that stuff. I'm just going to pick up in, in Colossians 2, starting in verse 12. And I want you, as I read through this or you follow along, I want you to think about some of these atonement theories that I've thrown out there this morning. And think about how Paul explains the cross, and he talks about baptism, and he talks about what took place at the cross. And just think about some of these theories, because Paul pretty much hits on almost every single atonement theory in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith and the power of God, who raised him from the dead. You know, we, we witnessed... Tate Salter baptized last Sunday morning. And so what we're witnessing is there's a, you're joining Jesus in death through baptism. But this resurrection that Jesus also predicts in Mark 8, 9, and 10, the resurrection that takes place is through baptism, we also, through the power of God, through faith, are raised up. Verse 13, when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. That's the substitution theory. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. What we owed for our sins, Jesus takes on himself. He substitutes himself, and all our trespasses, all our sins are forgiven. He nails it to the cross. In verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. That's Christus Victor theory right there. So Paul says to the question, why did Jesus have to die, or how does it work, or what is accomplished through it? He said that through Jesus' death and his resurrection, that somehow we were dead in sin, are now made alive through baptism, through faith in him. And on the cross, he substitutes himself not holding our sin against us, nailing our sin to the cross and disarming the powers and authorities and making an example of them through what seems like defeat is actually God's greatest victory through the cross. 
So as we journey back through the Gospel of Mark, Mark invites us to view the life and the teachings of Jesus through the lens of the cross, through cruciform living. As Jesus tells his disciples, we're on our way to Jerusalem, and that's where this is going to take place. Now, if you still have questions about why did Jesus have to die, he did a whole sermon on this, and I still don't fully get it, or I still have questions, well, we're here to answer some of your questions, or at least talk with you about it. Uh, some of you know our elders, our shepherds, you saw them up here on stage this morning. Uh, some of them are around the room, and they're always available f- to pray with you or to meet with you. One of them will be up front with me. So if you have questions, if you need to talk with someone, if you need prayers, if you're ready to be baptized into Christ, we have a time where we're going to sing an invitation song, and you can come up front, you can grab one of our shepherds, and you can respond at this time. So we invite you to stand back up. For all that you've done, I will 